from WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On Tuesday, a new set of emails surfaced revealing that Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner met with a Kremlin-connected Russian lawyer on the promise of dirt from the Russian government on Hillary Clinton in which Don Jr. wrote, quote, If it's what you say, I love it. Now, prior to these disclosures made by the young Don to get ahead of a New York Times scoop, we heard constantly from the White House that there was no collusion, no shred of evidence, and therefore nothing to talk about. Here's Don Jr. with CNN's Jake Tapper a year ago, just after that meeting with the Russian lawyer. Well, it just goes to show you their exact moral compass. I mean, they'll say anything to be able to win this. I mean, this is time and time again, lie after lie. You notice he won't say, well, I say this. We hear experts, you know, his house cat at home once said that this is what's happening with the Russians. It's disgusting. It's so phony. Now that there is proof of at least willingness to collude with Russia to damage Clinton's campaign, evidently there's still nothing to talk about. To the right-wing media, it was just the latest... Nothing burger. It's a nothing burger. Total nothing burger. Here's Fox's Sean Hannity. A friend of the Trumps offered to coordinate a meeting to share opposition research on Hillary Clinton, which Donald Trump Jr. agreed to. Nothing came of it because there was no information exchanged. And it ended there. Democrats, the mainstream media, are right now hysterical over the story. Alex Jones of Infowars faults the Democrats. This is a failed attempt by the Democrats to set up Donald Jr. and it's fallen flat on its face, just like all the other hoaxes. Right-wing self-declared troll Mike Cernovich doubts the law. I don't care. Nothing illegal happened. People are going, oh, this is the smoking gun. Smoking gun of what? And Tucker Carlson blames our suspicion of foreigners. <laughs> no. Really, he does. So gossiping with foreigners now qualifies as treason in America, even if no meaningful information is exchanged. You ought to consider that before you allow an exchange student to live in your house. The pro-Trump media is so obsessed with the idea that the media is out to get Donald Trump that they are willing to defend that and overlook basically anything. Protect dear leader at all costs. Charlie Wurzel, who covers this stuff for BuzzFeed, says the pro-Trump media exploit the public's misunderstanding of how reporting actually works. There is a lot of confusion around, say, anonymous sourcing. A lot of people who are just normal consumers of the media, they don't know what anonymous sources are. And the pro-Trump media seized on this, saying that, no, these anonymous people are anonymous because they're not real. They've just completely been made up. And the mainstream media is recklessly pushing anything they can to discredit the president. But the people who are passing that notion forward understand that it simply isn't true. They know how the New York Times works. They know that there have to be multiple sources to corroborate a story and that the editors actually know the names of the people who aren't named in the newspaper or in the broadcast report. They know that there is a rigorous system before an anonymous source is cited in a news article, and yet they continue to cultivate this meme. What's that all about? I think what this is, is it's a disingenuous play to win. Trumpism is about, first and foremost, winning. It's why Trump touts his electoral victory every possible way. 
the pro-Trump media have the same ideology, which is to win at all costs. So the idea that you would make something up or say something that isn't true just to further your point, they don't have any real ethical or moral dilemma. They look for all of the criticisms that are leveled against them, and they parrot it back and use it to win. All right, let's look at the Russian meeting story. The administration's line has evolved from there was no Russian meddling to we never met with any Russians to we met with Russians, but it was benign to we met with Russians, but there was no collusion to now, well, what's the matter with collusion? Can this story develop to a point where not only is there nothing left for the right-wing media to say, but they have lost any credibility, even with the audience most predisposed to believing it? It's unclear to me. I do feel that some of the larger personalities in this world, say Fox News' Sean Hannity, I don't know if he's willing to go down with the Trump administration if there were to be some definitive proof of collusion between Trump and Russia. But I do think that there are a group that are willing to go almost that far, a lot of the online personalities. There could be a point where they could turn on Trump and the administration, but I don't think it has to do so much with Russia. I think it has more to do with him not living up to some of the campaign promises or if Russia distracts him from building a wall. That is really where I can see them turning their backs. If there is a long game for the pro-Trump media beyond Trump, I think it's keeping those campaign promises alive. Let's just say there are indictments of Trump's circle or impeachment proceedings against the president or a presidential resignation under the burden of all of these allegations. Did these very same organizations circle the wagons around an ex-president Trump and incite who knows what against the institutions that unseated him? Oh, 100%. I think that's sort of a nightmare scenario for people who are concerned about this universe is that the institutions, be they the so-called deep state or just the establishment, cause change in this presidency, whether that be an impeachment proceeding or what have you. Trump becomes the absolute martyr. He becomes the figure of someone who tried to take down the establishment, and because he got so close, that's why they took him down. One of the only ways that the pro-Trump media sort of loses its steam is if the Trump presidency comes and goes and is semi-uneventful, other than beset by a lot of scandal. Am I making a mistake criticizing this all as media when it's a different animal altogether? I sort of coined this world as the Upside Down, which is a reference to an alternative universe in the Netflix show Stranger Things that looks a lot like the universe that we're used to, but is sort of darker and a little bit warped. And that's how I see this. It looks and feels so much like traditional media, and yet it lives in the world of alternative facts and Upside Down. So it is media. But the message is so completely pro-Donald Trump and the White House in the face of any criticism, no matter how concrete, that it's hard to call it journalism. But do they really care about Donald Trump or in upside-down world is something else really at play? 
What they care about more than anything else is tearing down the mainstream institutions. If you look at any of these scandals and controversies that the Trump administration has had since January 20th, you're going to see that every single one of them gets absorbed and then whipped up and spun by the pro-Trump media in a way that is intended to discredit the mainstream, to say that CNN is fake news, that the New York Times is peddling lies. Every single thing, including this Donald Trump Jr. email release, the first thing they did was attack the New York Times, saying, look, you didn't characterize your story properly. Uh, you didn't have the emails. That's why Donald Trump Jr. had to release them. When the reality was that the New York Times is the only reason that Donald Trump Jr. released the emails because of their dogged reporting. I think that what they really believe in more than Donald Trump is this idea that they have an opportunity to actually hit the mainstream media and discredit them to a point where they can sort of take over. Charlie, thank you. Thank you. Charlie Wurzel is a senior writer for BuzzFeed News. Now, I'll end it on this note to the mainstream media. You have zero credibility left. You have been caught time and time again spreading fake news stories, and you carry out your personal attacks against the president, against his family, and anybody that dares to be associated with the president. Since the election, the American media have been following the so-called Russia affair with near obsession. Every step taken by Russia's ambassador Sergei Kisilyak, tracked. Every Russian, a potential Kremlin agent. Every move by Putin, a strategic play in the great game. Since the recent meeting between Trump and Putin, there have been a slew of memes referencing the Netflix drama House of Cards. In that series, Russian President Viktor Petrov gives off an unmistakable whiff of Russian dominance. Have you ever been in um, Alada? Lada. No, I haven't. No? Oh, it's the worst car ever built. Tiny little thing. Your head would hit the ceiling when you hit a pothole. It was a coffin on wheels. But then, after the fall, we got the Lexus. So much room. First time I f my ex-wife in a Lexus. <laughs> you can never do that in a Lada. No space. <laughs> you see, Mr. President, I want the Lexus. And you're trying to sell me a ladder. And that is exactly how Putin wants to present himself, and that's how he wants to see himself. But that doesn't mean necessarily that it's true. Alexei Kavalyov created the Russian website The Noodle Remover to expose the cock and ball in Russia's state media. But lately he sees some disturbing parallels in the American press, an abundance of stories that so aggrandize Putin that a staffer at the propagandistic Russia Today called it Christmas in July. Putin is not a strategist. He is at best a very skilled tactician, but his entire domestic and foreign policy is very reactive. The best he can do in reacting to challenges put in front of him is punishing Russians for something the American leaders have done as retaliation for a bill passed by the U.S. Congress. Putin responded by restricting the American adoption of Russian children. This was to strike a blow against Americans. You say it's really striking a blow against Russians. Yeah, there's a Russian expression coming from the 
early revolution years to strike your own, to instill fear in your enemies. Someone bullies you and you turn around and you smack your sister in the face. Yeah, exactly. Putin himself and his administration and his propaganda machine are, at their core, extremely insecure. Why? It seems that they're highly capable of disrupting democracies all around the world. No, that's really not the case, because they are only able of disrupting democracies that are next door to Russia and that have a sizable Russian population, where they can claim they are protecting the interests of the ethnic Russians. You have this assumption that Putin has some sort of universally effective army of trolls and hackers and propagandists. But if you look at what we see on the ground in Russia, why doesn't Putin ever employ this universally effective army of hackers and trolls in his own hometown of St. Petersburg? I just assumed he did. Well, he did try to, but both him and his party have consistently failed to secure a landslide victory in his own hometown. Okay, so this Underwood meme that I opened with offers, you think, the classic American view of Putin and sort of lays out exactly what's wrong with the American view. The thing is that this fictional image of Putin gives him far too much credit. He doesn't even have that much influence at home. When they tried to fix the elections last time, there were historically biggest protests on the streets of Moscow and all the major Russian cities. Are you saying the polls are rigged too? That say that a huge majority of Russians across the country support him? Russia has three major pollsters. Two are state-owned. There is also another pollster, also owned actually by Putin's own security apparatus, to report back to Putin what people really think about him. Do we know what his own private security pollsters actually say? No, because nobody has access to those figures. Can you tell me what some of the bad habits are of the American press that you've noticed when covering Putin? You have these really uh, persisting tropes, which are really misleading, like labeling any Russian diplomat or journalist for a state-funded publication as some sort of subversive agents in the United States. Most people who work for state-owned businesses or work in Russian embassies, aren't they extensions of the Russian government? Not at all. This is the problem. I know a lot of people in DC bureaus working for the Russian state publications, and they're extremely professional and sound journalists. There's a very limited number of people who can be described as Putin-linked. Maybe a couple of dozen people who used to be in the same judo club. So another trope you've talked about is the obsessive tracking of Kislyak. If you look up the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael Mukful, you'll find a lot of coverage on how he used to be persistently harassed by the Kremlin. Yeah, Michael McFall, who was uh, Obama's ambassador to Russia, was accused of virtually every bad thing that happened to Russia in that period. And that is exactly what is happening to the Russian ambassador to the United States. You've also suggested that the American media are very focused on connecting the dots between various Russia-connected elements in order to create an ironclad conspiracy. Yes, and that is a very Putin thing to do. 
To blame your failure is on an external malicious force. This is exactly what Putin himself did in 2011 when he blamed the mass protests on Hillary Clinton's interference in Russian elections. It's interesting. You've suggested that this coverage that overplays Putin's strategic malevolence and all of that really plays into Putin's own desires to be praised. Well, domestically at least, very much so. What I'm seeing here in Moscow, and I'm watching the Russian state media all the time, is that Putin really has a resurgence on the state media as this massively influential world leader. And didn't Putin actually hire a PR firm with the goal of getting a positive op-ed in the Times? Yes, Putin's office hired a K-street firm, Ketchum, to whitewash his image. They did place an op-ed signed by Vladimir Putin in the New York Times, The Guardian, and the Huffington Post of all places. Look at our wise dear leader who is so influential that the New York Times publishes his op-eds. But you know, this week, the kind of op-eds we've seen, not by Putin, suggests that he is incredibly strong. One is called Putin Meets His Progeny. It doesn't seem as if he has to pay for the kind of PR that suggests he's very powerful. This whole notion of Putin being so incredibly, almost magically prescient that he somehow, back in 2015, way before Donald Trump announced his run for the president, invested all the time and effort and strategy into electing Donald Trump as this Russian puppet president of the United States. No. (laughs) Everything I've learned about my own country after one and a half decade of covering it tells me that Putin is really not the 3D chess grandmaster strategist that he is portrayed to be in the American media. And he doesn't do anyone any good by portraying him as he wants to be seen. Alexei, thank you very much. You're welcome, Brooke. Alexei Kavalyov, formerly news editor for the Moscow Times, is also founder and editor of the website The Noodle Remover. Coming up, another story about a fraud, fictitious voter fraud, and the commission created to prove it exists. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Many of you listening know that there is no evidence, none, to back up the president's charge of widespread voter fraud. And so many of you may have cheered this latest development about the president's commission to root out this fictitious fraud. The Trump administration is requesting detailed voter information from all 50 states, and many states are saying they will not comply. We're seeing the body slam going on by 44 states. 44 states, Republicans and Democrats, have said no to the Trump Fraud Commission's request for voter information. The Secretary of State of Mississippi has said to the commission they can go and jump in the Gulf of Mexico, and Mississippi is a great state 
to launch from. Here, finally, a measure of comfort to those concerned not at all about voter fraud, but seriously worried about voter suppression. That does occur and is likely to increase if Trump's commission has its way. Run by Vice President Mike Pence and Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, it was created to find fraud by any means necessary and to use those findings to pass laws that further suppress the vote. So, many find solace in reports of bipartisan pushback. But ProPublica's Jessica Hoosman says that those stories don't mean what we think they mean. Jessica, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So, in late June, the Voter Fraud Commission sent letters out to officials in all 50 states asking for voter information. What specifically did they want? The letter itself was incredibly sloppily done. They said, we want your publicly available voter rolls. But then the letter went on to suggest that they give them things that are never public in almost any state, like the last four digits of your social security number, your felon status, your full date of birth. And so depending on how you read the letter, they were either asking for just publicly available information or they were asking for all of this stuff that could, in fact, be a privacy violation. But I guess most important is that in many states, the whole voter roll is publicly available information. Right. In Washington and North Carolina, you can just go onto the Secretary of State's website and download the most recent version of the voter roll. What you're probably going to get is first name, last name, year of birth, maybe party affiliation, and the number of times and in which elections you have previously voted, but not how you voted. That's how parties contact you with mailers. That's how people know that they should knock on your door. So I think that it's really important for people to understand that even if it appears that your state is not cooperating with Chris Kobach, they will probably get their hands on the publicly available voter roll. Because they have to. Because they have to, right? So, you know, this past weekend was the National Association of Secretaries of State, and they all gathered in Indianapolis to chat about election administration and cybersecurity and all the things that secretaries of states do. And one of the things that I heard from all over the board was that the media was getting this wrong. And you offer a stunning example of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here are different headlines for the same Associated Press article that ran on July 1st. Iowa election official says he'll share public voter data. Pate pushes back on Iowa voter data request. Right. Let us identify uh, Paul Pate as Iowa's Secretary of State. Right. Depending on how you interpret the letter that Chris Kobach sent, one or all of those things could be true, right? So what Pate has done is he has said, I will give the publicly available voter roll to Chris Kobach because he doesn't really have any choice. His state law makes the voter roll public. Or he's pushing back because he's not giving them the last four digits of their Social Security number. Right, exactly. Okay, so there was one response that was getting a lot of press from Mississippi. It's Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman said... They can go jump in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Isn't uh, (laughs) Hoseman a pretty staunchly right guy? He is. And you know what? This is a concern that a lot of secretaries of state have. The Constitution gives election administration to the states to be in charge of. From 
all secretaries of states that I have spoken to, every single one, they are concerned that this is a massive federal overreach. Seems like finally, finally, this partisan divide has been breached to protect something that is precious and essential. But you say it's dangerous to take comfort in this. Right. You know, I was having this really interesting conversation with Myrna Perez at the Brennan Center, and they're big advocates for voter rights. She said to me every single time any of these major media companies say, At least 44 states, along with the District of Columbia, are now refusing to provide— 44 states have refused the Trump administration's request— Well, now 44 states and, and the district are pushing back. How many people have tweeted at me? I'm glad that my personal information is safe because my governor has said that they won't participate when, in fact, states are participating. I guess the other part of this, and this is your scoop, is what Kobach and the commission are planning to do with these voter rolls once they come in. One thing that Chris Kobach has previously said he'd like to do is run voter rolls against a database called SAVE, which is a list of all of the immigrants in the United States who are presently moving through the citizenship track, okay? So it's a big list of non-citizens. In 2012, didn't Florida Governor Rick Scott do that very thing? He did, in fact. And what happened was that he was getting so many false positives that he had to scrap the effort entirely. How do you get a false positive? These databases don't include, as we now know, the social security number of the individual, which might be a unique identifying number. If I have a Matt Schwartz from Indiana and I've got a Matt Schwartz from Oklahoma and they both have the same social security number and they both have the same year of birth, then it's probably the same dude. But if I only have his first name, last name, and I know that he was born in 1985, there are like hundreds of Matt Schwartz that were born in 1985. Or maybe Manuel Gonzalez's. Right. And so you're going to get a bunch of people who appear to be non-citizens that in fact are citizens and are legally registered to vote. That is what's happened in Florida. Experts tell me that's what's going to happen now. This commission can point to numbers that suggest massive fraud, which are actually a huge number of false positives because of this method that they're using. Exactly. So when Chris Kobach tried this similar matching system in his own state, a study by Stanford political scientists this year found that for every 200 matches that Chris Kobach found using cross-check, only one of them was a true match. So experts are worried that Chris Kobach will find this massive number of false positives and say, look how much potential fraud there is in the United States. And all of that will be bad information. And so states will pass laws to prevent fraudulent registrations that don't exist, but will, in fact, restrict the right to vote. So there is this theory going around that the commission asked for things in that strangely worded letter knowing that officials couldn't share some of that information by their own laws in their states, but that simply by refusing, it gives the White House the opening to charge that the states must be up to something. Mr. Trump tweeting, numerous states are refusing to give information to the very distinguished voter fraud panel. What are they trying to hide? This is seen by some as a kind of fiendishly clever three-dimensional chess. Chris Kobach is not playing a game of three-dimensional chess. He is playing paintball, right? <laughs> Chris Kobach thinks that there is voter fraud. He has a target and he is going to hit it. 
you know and I know exactly what he's going to do. This commission is going to produce a lot of talking points. I am not convinced that it will produce a lot of policy change. At the Secretary of State's conference last weekend, I got the impression that they were all concerned that this matching system was going to be bad. That did not stop at party doors. And if they're concerned about the veracity of the data that Kobach is going to produce, then I think that they probably will not act on the information that is given to them by this commission. Well, Jessica Hoosman, you can knock me over with a feather. You left (laughs) us with some consolation after all. Sure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Jessica Hoosman covers voting rights and fair elections for ProPublica. Coming up, citizen journalists in Syria and a radio host in Iraq fight ISIS in a gruesome messaging war. And that war has a death toll. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. In recent weeks, ISIS has been under attack in its strongholds in Syria and Iraq. In particular, Raqqa, the self-proclaimed capital of the so-called caliphate. Islamic State is hemmed in here, almost surrounded, and they're fighting back. It's getting ugly for ISIS here. They've moved their prisoners out. Top commanders have fled. Their lieutenants only drive around in low-profile normal cars. Their enemy is literally at the gates. ISIS's world vanishing fast. The citizens of Raqqa have long borne the brunt of ISIS terror. But we don't hear their stories because our journalists can't get there. Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. It's a tragic fact and also the name of a group of citizen journalists who risk their lives to break that silence, to show the world how the people of Raqqa are oppressed and murdered under the world's radar. Anonymous members of the group inside the city sacrificed themselves to smuggle photos, videos, and stories to their comrades who have fled to Turkey, Germany, and elsewhere. Matthew Heinemann is the director of City of Ghosts, a new documentary that tells the story of Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. Abdel Aziz Alhamza is co-founder and spokesman for the group, which we will refer to as RBSS. Aziz said it didn't take long for its members to fall under the guns of ISIS. Two weeks after we started our organization, ISIS announced in the mosques that everyone who's working with RBSS should be executed. A month after we started, they arrested one of our colleagues, and later on he was executed. Thousands of people were arrested because they just put on our Facebook page. Later on, they arrested the father of my colleagues and the co-founder of RBSS, and then they text us either to give the names of three of our colleagues or they will kill the father. And later on, they started to target us in Turkey and even like outside Syria. All of us are threatened wherever we are. It's kind of astonishing, considering the threat that you were under, Aziz, to let a third party in to film your operations from the inside. Why? Before meeting Matt, we were not planning to do any movie or any documentary because of security. But later on, we knew like doing this documentary will help us to spread our message out, to reach thousands and millions of people, to educate them about what's going on in Raqqa. So that was like more important than our security. Matt, you are an able filmmaker and a genius at obtaining access. 
in your last film, Cartel Land, you somehow managed to get inside of both a drug cartel and a uh, anti-drug cartel organization and a militia group on the U.S. side of the border, all of whom were people who were operating, let's just say, extra-legally. Now you were inside RBSS. You obviously were not in Raqqa. You had to figure out another way to tell the story of what the group's members were doing within. My idea was that the spine of the film would be this exodus from Syria to Turkey and Turkey ultimately to Europe as members of RBSS were forced to flee. I also knew that, you know, I wanted to show life inside Raqqa. However, you know, I was not able to go to Raqqa. I would be killed instantly. It was a very difficult exercise for me as a filmmaker because all my films have been footage that I've shot. And so... Here, you know, there's a lot of negotiating on how to get the footage out of Raqqa, obviously using archival footage. We also use some footage from ISIS themselves through various websites that track and monitor terrorist groups like ISIS. And then we also subscribed, if you will, <laughs> to some ISIS channels on the dark web and other places to receive content that they were disseminating every single day. And some of the footage is just horrifying. A lot of supposed infidels or traitors being shot to death, just executed summarily in public places by ISIS forces. How do you know when the, the graphic violence is too much? It was... It was tough. I didn't want to shy away from the reality of what was happening in Raqqa. I didn't want to shy away from the horrors that the citizens of Raqqa, you know, are experiencing every single day. And I think to shy away from it would be doing injustice to their experience. At the same time, we didn't want people to run out of movie theaters or turn off their TVs or however people watch movies these days. And so, you know, it was very much a balancing act in the edit room. Aziz, at least it's horrifying were the images of you and your colleagues in Turkey or in Germany in exile contemplating what the future holds for you as one after another of your friends is assassinated. We watch you coming to terms with the realization that your chances of surviving in the, the long term are just not good. When my colleagues and I started RBSS, we knew that in any second, in any moment, we will be killed. And uh, doing this movie might increase the risk every single second, but it was not our first experience. All of us were arrested by the Syrian regime. All of us used to be activists during the Syrian revolution. Personally, I got arrested three times, I, and I was tortured, and I was lucky to be released. For me personally, I believe that I will be died one day, so I don't care if it's it tomorrow, after a week, after a year. You know, these guys had, had all been through more than any of us could ever imagine. Arrested and tortured by the Assad regime, arrested and tortured by ISIS, family members, colleagues, friends who were killed by ISIS, many of them being forced to flee, continuing to get death threats. Just unimaginable. To some degree, this film was really about trauma, 
And so it was key for me to try to scratch beneath the veneer of, of stoicism to see, you know, what effect this was really having on them. And obviously that final scene in the film is the crescendo of that, where we really see Aziz lay himself bare. There is one scene in the film which is separate from the rest. It was a rally in Germany of anti-immigrant protesters. The problem was that I couldn't stay or like keep silent. So I'm the one who used to demonstrate, to protest, to fight against the Syrian regime, against ISIS. So I couldn't just stay home doing nothing. So I decided just to go to the street to demonstrate against them. And then I was able to sit with some of them and have like a conversation. Most of them, they don't know about what's going on in Syria. They're listening to whatever those leaders tell them. And their problem is not only about refugees, but about everyone who's not a real native German, as they said. Those people are like missing educations. As Aziz said, ISIS said, you're not Muslim, get out of the caliphate. You're not one of us. And then he arrives in Germany, and then suddenly he's labeled as a terrorist. There's many reasons that the scene's in the film, but part of it is, is that Aziz has this fire burning inside of him. And even in the streets of Berlin, he's continuing to fight for what he believes in. Because this is a proxy war, it seems so intractable. You and your colleagues are in enormous danger, presumably for the rest of your lives. It, it makes me wonder whether the sacrifice has been worth it. A hundred percent. For us, all of us, we're a group of young friends. Our ages are between 18 and 28. And we were able to make a change in the international community, international media. And when we see ISIS are targeting us because we are affecting them, we know that we are winning somehow. We feel that we've done like a victory for our country, for our city, and we were able like to have a heard voice everywhere. And I'm sure the history will talk about us. I wish you and your colleagues nothing but the best. Thank you. Abdel Aziz Alhamza is a co-founder and spokesman for Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. Matthew Heineman is the director of City of Ghosts, a new documentary about the citizen journalist group, Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. Can I say one thing that you can feel free to throw in the trash can? Sure. I think, you know, I, I made this film for many, many reasons, but partly, you know, it's an homage to journalism in this world where truth seems to be malleable. I think it's so important to seek out and celebrate individuals who are risking their lives for the truth. And I can't think of a much better example than the members of Raqqa's being slaughtered silently who've literally risked everything to shed light on this dark corner of the world. I think it's really important to recognize the amazing work of citizen journalists really all around the world who are filling a void where traditional media has been unable either to go there or doesn't have the resources to be there. 
As Arab and Kurdish forces pushed ever closer to the ISIS stronghold in Raqqa, on Monday, a parallel operation in Mosul, Iraq, brought bittersweet news. The Iraqi government has announced its forces have finally taken full control of Mosul, the city held by so-called Islamic State extremists for the past three years. They're jubilant in Mosul. They've driven the extremists out. But it's come at a price. After nine months of fighting, the city lies in ruins. Many of the tens of thousands of civilians trapped by the fighting with little food or water are now trying to flee to safety. And it got worse from there. On Thursday, the media got hold of a video depicting brutal acts of retribution against suspected ISIS members. The latest shows what appear to be Iraqi soldiers throwing a suspect over a cliff and then shooting at his motionless body. So the people of Mosul are not free yet of terror. But now at least its citizens can savor basic freedoms like listening to the radio. She's saying congratulating to the people of Mosul, to all of us, to the Iraqi security forces of the victory of liberating Mosul. She's also greetings Al-Ghad radio station. Her name is Umnur. This is one of the countless devoted listeners who call into Radio Al-Ghad, a community station that defied the media blackout and broadcast to the besieged city during the darkest days of the ISIS occupation. In June 2014, what we've never expected happened. One day we were forced to leave Mosul without being able to get our belongings from the city. That's Mohammed al-Musili, Radio Al-Ghad's founder. He and his 24-person staff of journalists, DJs, and scholars still use fake names and operate the station in a secret location some 60-plus miles from the city. Mohammed says that when Mosul fell to ISIS, or Daesh, three years ago, he created the station to fight the Islamic State's devastatingly effective propaganda. Media was their weapon. The first thing they established is their radio station. People in Mosul were completely isolated by Daesh, not allowing people to have access to cell phones or to the internet or satellite TVs at their homes. People only have Daesh media. And somehow the Iraqi media message was aligned with Daesh message, showing people of Mosul to be supporters of Daesh. This is why it was very important to counter that message and to show the truth and to make sure that the voice of the people inside the city, inside Mosul, will be delivered to the rest of the world. And this is what we did. We've been hurted by Daesh. They stopped our lives. They stopped us from going to complete our education. And we are left with no future. We are living in a prison. From the first week we started the broadcasting Daesh, start jamming our frequency. We had to change the frequency, and then after one week, they did jam us again, and then they become even faster in one day. They jam us again, and then it becomes two hours takes them to jam the new frequency. For this reason, we had to install more transmitters to make sure we are broadcasting on many frequencies simultaneously, and to make sure people know that we are there and they just have to look for us. Now, one way that you fought back against ISIS propaganda was with a program you did called Dash 
in the scale of Islam and civilization. And this was a talk show intended for ISIS supporters. I think that may be a first for any media outlet based in Iraq that wasn't produced by ISIS. What was the show about? That program was presented by a scholar who has a PhD in Islamic theories. He speaks the language that Daesh would speak, highlighting the biggest vulnerabilities within the Daesh argument and make sure people have both sides. He pointed to actions of ISIS, right? Destroying historical places or mosques, forcing minorities to leave. He was saying that the behavior of ISIS was inconsistent with its religious preachings. Yes, that was exactly what was the program about. We even asked Dash to call the radio station and we promised them that we are not stopping their calls. And some of them, they tried to have that live debate, which I think is quite neat. The ICE members said, we don't have the respect to the Islamic State. The Islamic State is staying and expanding. It will be all over the Arabic countries, and we'll take these countries to be part of our Islamic State while you're looking. Most of the scholars were avoiding these topics in public, and this is why I felt we are quite responsible to give the people an alternative and make sure they have access to information that they need in that critical time. Did it have any impact, do you think? Yes, it had a big impact. And after the liberation, we start getting some calls from people who were deceived and they were very thankful to the presenter because they said, we've used to listen to every single episode. Some of those people quit joining Dash. And they had a lot of people to witness what they call like repentance from what they did. Over the last nine months, Iraq's campaign to take back the city intensified. Your station acted as an intermediary between the people of Mosul and Iraq's armed forces. There was a lot of misunderstanding from both parties. For example, when Iraqi people were accused to be supporters of Daesh, Daesh used that point to tell the people by the time the Iraqi security forces will enter Mosul, they will take your women, your kids, they will kill you all. But at the same time, Iraqi soldiers had different opinion about people of Mosul. So having both talking And for the Iraqi soldiers saying, we are ready to sacrifice our lives to liberate you. That was a very important and emotional message that reached both sides that was not possible without the radio station. Didn't you also get pretty granular in your reports during the liberation of the western part of the city? We were coordinating with the civil defense to say there are people who are hostages in an area or people who were struck and they are still alive, they are underground, they need urgent help. A woman calling Al-Ghad radio and saying, my brother's daughter with her family are all in Mosul, their house being struck, all her and her family with a newborn kid, they are all underground and we need someone to help them. We don't have anyone except you. Please help. 
Sometimes the information is not completed by a person describing a house in a neighborhood because he doesn't know the coordinates of the house. And we try all our best to find that information and pass it directly to the civil defense. To be honest, like one of the things I feel most proud of is saving people's lives. Whatever I'm going to do in the future, I would not be able to do something more human than this. Mohammed, Mosul was the largest city held by the Islamic State. Even before Iraqi forces officially took it, Prime Minister al-Abadi announced the end of ISIS's caliphate. Do you think it's premature to do that? It's quite a big achievement, but there are still some areas in Iraq like Tel Afar and Hawija. Mm-hmm. So Iraq is not fully liberated. And of course, Daesh would try to reestablish their network in a different way. And today, even though Mosul is liberated, there are a lot of sleeping cells living among civilians in the east part of Mosul. So as the residents of Mosul and the Iraqi government which didn't serve the city all that well in the past, start the process of rebuilding. What do you see as Radio Al-Ghad's new role? I want to make sure the Iraqi government knows what the people feel, and I don't want to have a lot of filtration process in the middle where the reality is not being delivered to the officials. We want to give the people a voice where they can speak freely about their problems, so they can be part of the change instead of waiting for someone to change their lives to make sure my people will not fall into the same trap again. Mohammed Al-Mosli is the founder of Radio Al-Qad, a community radio station broadcasting to Mosul, Iraq. Mohammed, thank you very much. Thank you. You also have a talent show, right? Yeah, the talent show started when... 70% of the east part of Mosul was liberated. Mm-hmm. And it was the first live talent show in radios in Iraq. <laughs> Did they just sing on the phone? Yes, a lot of them, they just start singing on the phone. And then it went through different stages. But at the end, we send reporters to Mosul to record to those people. And this week, we've published their first production about the liberation of Mosul, and that was from the top three who won the talent show. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leia Fetter. We had more help from Jane Vaughn, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. This show is dedicated to Aaron Brenneman. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.